folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. This week, we bring you part two of Camilla's exploration into some of the most popular cybersecurity buzzwords that are going around, and we do the usual roundup of security vulnerabilities that have been fixed in the supported Ubuntu releases over the past week. So let's just get into it. Up first, we had an update for Squid for Ubuntu releases 18.04, 20.04, and 22.04 long-term support, and 21.10. In this case, it was a single vulnerability that was fixed in handling of the Gopher protocol, which could result in a possible denial of service. So yeah, interesting that one, because I guess we don't see Gopher in use almost anywhere nowadays. Uh, it's very early uh, kind of alternative or precursor to HTTP. A different kind of reimagining, I guess, of the web had it been that, where it's more kind of a menu structure and that kind of thing rather than sort of pages and links and uh, that kind of stuff that we have in uh, HTTP and HTML nowadays. But yeah, so interesting one there if you are still using Gopher or if you are proxying Gopher through Squid, I guess you're a bit safer now. Uh, we had an update for Apache, and actually I talked about this back in last week's episode. Seven CVEs were rolled into that. Unfortunately, the update uh, did introduce a couple of regressions, and so they have now been fixed for all those releases. If you want more details, though, on the vulnerabilities, yeah, go check out last week's episode. An update for Vim as well was done for our 1604 extended security maintenance customers. In this case, I guess it's similar to a lot of the vulnerabilities that we've seen in Vim lately. It uh, looks like uh, due to the bug bounty that is offered nowadays on Vim, lots of people are diving in and finding different vulns and you know probably getting some nice bug bounty cash for that. In this case, a user after free that could be triggered when opening and then searching through a crafted file. Uh, being used after free likely would crash Vim, but could possibly get uh, code execution as well through that. Uh, the Linux kernel was updated as well for a vulnerability in the eight devices USB to CAN driver. This is for our Ubuntu releases 18.04, 20.04, long-term support, uh, 21.10, and 16.04 extended security maintenance. In that case, it is for uh, the general availability kernels in those releases. So that's uh, 5.13 for 21.10, 5.4 for 20.04, uh, the 4.15 kernel in 18.04 long-term support, and as well, that is used as the hardware enablement kernel in 16.04 extended security maintenance. So if you were using one of these eight devices, USB to CAN uh, devices, possible that a local attacker could get, uh, more potentially, code execution, but likely a crash uh, through a double free that they could trigger in an error scenario. In this case, you'd probably need like a crafted hardware device that was uh, emulating or pretending to be this uh, eight devices USB to CAN uh, device. But yeah, likely result of that one is denial of service. We also had an update for SpiderMonkey, the JavaScript uh, library and engine. Uh, this is also known as libmods.js. Essentially extracts the JavaScript engine from Firefox. Uh, this is actually a courtesy of Jeremy Beecher from the Ubuntu desktop team. So uh, it's actually not easy to identify security issues in Moz.js. Obviously, there are a lot of updates that happen for Firefox and Thunderbird. And so this code base uh, that they share does get updated quite often in those packages, but it's really not easy to extract uh, kind of the commits and that kind of thing and apply them uh, piecemeal to Moz.js in Ubuntu. And Moz.js is used, I guess, as the renderer for things like GNOME Shell and others. So it is important that we do, uh, I guess, try to patch this, but yeah, not an easy one to maintain. So thanks, Jeremy, for doing the hard work on this. Essentially, he went through uh, the list of commits in upstream Moz.js, matched the bug numbers in those that uh, reference the upstream Mozilla bug tracker, then against uh, the Mozilla security advisories to figure out which of those were security sensitive. And that's how we can actually uh, figure out that there were two different CVEs that were fixed in this update. 
it updates uh, MozJS to the latest 91.10 uh, release, and that's for our Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support release. And as a result, uh, I guess in doing this, he found also that the current package actually fails to build at all in Jammy. And that does happen sometimes because uh, we take a package and say it builds in, say, Impish, in this case, uh, libmozjs, then we um, import that into Jammy. Maybe it never gets updated from then, and it never actually gets rebuilt as the rest of the toolchain and the like in Jammy changes. So he had to uh, then fix a small issue where one of the tests during the build would fail and that would then cause the build to fail entirely itself. So yeah, so thanks Jeremy for doing all the heavy lifting on that. And the last thing that we had uh, in security updates was an update for curl. So four different CVEs were fixed here uh, for our Ubuntu releases 18.04, 20.04 and 22.04 for long-term support and 21.10. All four of these were identified by Harry Sintonen. Uh, in this case, it was a mishandling of the set cookies header could result in curl uh, crashing and cause a denial of service against curl. Uh, there was also mishandling of changed HTTP compression algorithms. Essentially, a server could uh, respond by compressing and recompressing a response many times. Curl would then obviously try to decompress at each of those times. As a result, it would eventually run out of memory, uh, the so-called malloc bomb. Uh, during that decompression, you'd then get a denial of service through curl crashing again. It also failed to properly set permissions when downloading cookies and other files. Uh, that could then possibly be read by other users. Essentially, uh, it wouldn't uh, set the proper UMask doing that. Uh, it would download them to a temporary file, do a rename, and in the rename didn't use the right UMask. So that uh, renamed file would potentially have uh, two wired permissions and other users on your system could potentially read them. They do say that you could mitigate this by using a stricter UMask yourself locally uh, in your system setting, and that is true. However, uh, you know, we have looked into this in the past to sort of harden Ubuntu in general and there are lots of things that subtly fail once you start introducing a stricter UMask they essentially assume that uh, permissions on files will end up being more wide than they then end up being so yeah not an easy one uh, just to ratchet down and tighten up but yeah that has been fixed as well as an issue where if you were doing uh, FTP that was secured by Kerberos, uh, it would fail to properly verify messages. And as a result, uh, you could possibly have a person in the middle inject data or a snoop on your connection and that kind of thing. So they've been fixed for curl. And that is it for the week in security updates. Okay, so this week we also bring you part two of Camilla's uh, Decoding Cybersecurity Buzzwords uh, series. In this case, Camilla looks from encryption to the deep or dark web and continues the journey into demystifying some of the most popular buzzwords in cybersecurity. Hello, listener. Welcome to part two of our Cybersecurity Buzzwords series. Last episode, we talked about ransomwares, botnets, and phishing attacks. Let's keep the bees happy and continue on this buzzing journey of better understanding what is the meaning behind the word and turning the bzzz into an ah, I see, instead. If you haven't listened to the last episode, I highly recommend you do it before you proceed with this one. But hey, that is your choice. I don't want to take too long with this introduction, so for those who are already in for this ride, Without further ado, let's jump in. Our first word of today and the fourth word overall, we've talked about it before and we are talking about it now once again. Buzzword number four is the one and only firewall. If you listen to the episodes involving the Ubuntu hardening topic, you already know that our dearest friend firewall is one way to keep your network safe because it allows you to filter and possibly block incoming and outgoing traffic in your network. Through use of a firewall, you can define that users in your network can't access a specific website 
or you can keep connections coming from a specific IP address from ever being established with the same users. It's an important job, the one done by a firewall. However, it is not 100% hacker-proof. A firewall does what it needs to do well, but it won't save you from yourself. For example, if you decide to become the victim of every phishing campaign happening out there. So, do you see that buzzword right there? Phishing? That's why I recommended you listen to the last episode, because I explain what phishing is there. Moving on with our example here, if email service is allowed by the firewall, a hacker can try to get to the network through it. And in that case, my friend, you are the weakest link. As said hacker is expecting you to make the mistake that will allow them passage when the firewall will not do so through other ports or services in the network. Don't expect the wall to protect your network if your staff is handing out keys to the building's back door to anyone that mentions that they work there. I am adding firewalls here on this list because ever since the dawn of time, or at least the dawn of my time, I see the word firewall being thrown around in television shows, in presentations that want to nudge cybersecurity a little bit, and even on the thoughts of people who are wondering, how did I get infected with malware? I have a firewall. So, yeah. Unfortunately, the buzzword became a universal term used to describe all software and defensive techniques, even if they are not all the same. To make an analogy, a firewall is one fruit amongst a huge selection of different fruits that exist in this beautiful world, but people insist on calling all fruits firewalls. I am sure you can imagine a situation where I give you a lime and call it an apple, and I am sure that in your imagination you are not too pleased about the result once you bite into that fruit expecting one thing and instead getting another. You might feel a little sour should I decide to do such a thing. Haha, <laughs> get it? Bad jokes aside, it's important to understand what a firewall really is and what it can actually do for you in terms of protecting your network. Not all attacks are the same, so not all attacks will be stopped by a firewall. If you go beyond the buzzword and beyond the beautiful wall and fire icon, which at this point could be called a buzz icon, you start to actually build a defense strategy that makes sense and is efficient for your network, one that will include a firewall, but will not expect it to defend the network, cook, wash your clothes, all at the same time. Therefore, the next time you hear someone in a show mentioning that they have breached 50% of the firewall, Remember your training. Remember what a firewall actually is. And remember that if you are able to bypass the firewall, you either did it 100% or you simply didn't. And then relax and laugh a little because you used your knowledge to actually build a defense strategy that even if an attacker bypasses the firewall by 100%, you are able to prevent an attack from actually being successful with the help of your other layers of defense. You fought valiantly, firewall friend, but not all threats are avoidable by you, and we know that now. 
We also know that movie security in movie networks are probably awful because they seem to only use a firewall to defend very important data. And the firewall is most likely broken, being only 50% bypassed and all. Geez, get a grip, Hollywood, or hacking might become too easy for those imaginary hackers. Buzzword number five is encryption. Encrypting, encrypted, encrypt. This buzzword is also one that I think can be considered a long-living buzzword. Data encryption suffers from the same problem as firewalls in the sense that people see it as a solution to all of their problems. Oh, and movies also like to use the word a lot, so that doesn't help. If my data is encrypted, it is completely safe, right? Wrong. What is encryption then, and what purpose does it serve? When you encrypt your data, you are actually just encoding it, transforming it in such a way that whatever information is actually imbued within it cannot be extracted because the data no longer represents something that can be understood by a potential snooper of that data. One encrypted character a day keeps the snooper away, or at least that is the goal anyway. The main purpose of encryption is to maintain data confidentiality, or in other words, to prevent an unauthorized party from getting access to the data that is going to be encrypted. Therefore, encryption is a technique that will serve the purpose of encoding data in such a way that it loses its meaning to whoever is not authorized to know it. Who are the ones authorized? Those that have the decryption key. And if that key is stolen or shared with someone it shouldn't be, well, then you can say goodbye to your expected confidentiality, as this new someone can now decode the data and interpret it as you would. I guess what annoys me a little bit about this buzzword is the fact that it is used to make people feel completely safe even when the situation does not necessarily guarantee this. The most simple example I can think of is VPNs. I see advertisements for those all the time, and in these advertisements, people mention how VPNs will help you stay safe from hackers when you're browsing online. And that is not completely true. It depends on what the hacker is doing. If a hacker is trying to track you and figure out what you are doing on the internet, that is, they're trying to snoop on your browsing activities, then yes, a VPN which will help you mask your tracks by adding a layer of encryption to your traffic and acting as a middleman in your communication with your destination will indeed protect you. Think of it as sending an encrypted letter to an intermediary courier. Only you and the courier know the decryption key, and so anyone that tries to intercept the letter and does not have this key will be unable to do anything about it. They don't know who is the actual destination of the letter, nor do they know what is the purpose of the letter. All they know is that the courier will receive it and send it to the actual destination. Encryption keeps your communication confidential. Once it gets to the courier, the courier decrypts it and then sends it to the actual destination and your snooper can't know it is from you because the courier is also sending and receiving data from a bunch of people and that courier has promised secrecy to you, meaning 
It promised it won't tell others which one is your letter. Anyway, now think about the situation where you willingly decide to access a malicious website through a VPN. There is no encryption that will save you from your bad choices here. An encrypted conversation with an attacker is still a conversation with an attacker, and an encrypted malware sent to you through your VPN tunnel will still execute in your machine should you tell it to. So once again, I tell you, use encryption, but know its purpose. It's not because a website is HTTPS, or in other words, it's not because a website has that little lock in the top left corner that you are protected from all evil lurking on the internet. All it means is that data you send to that website server will be sent to it encrypted. This in turn means that your login credentials won't be out in the open, being sent in clear text through the network, free to be accessed by anyone that chooses to sniff the data in any point of the path from source to destination. They will be encrypted and whoever comes across this data in transit won't be able to know the true contents unless they have the decryption key, which is shared between you and the server only. However, you can decide to send encrypted credentials to an attacker as well. Malicious websites can be HTTPS. In fact, attackers take advantage of the fact that people blindly trust HTTPS websites because they are encrypted and make fake HTTPS bank pages in order to steal credentials. Phishing attacks, remember those? So here we have a situation where the buzz in the word is being harmful for those that don't actually try to understand the meaning behind it. When you want to make sure a website is safe, not only check for the tiny lock in the top left corner of the browser, also do check if the website certificate actually identifies that page as being authentic, as being owned and provided by the entity that you believe it to be. So yeah, I guess final thoughts on this once again are encryption is fine when you don't forget to combine it with other security measures. I wanted to make a cool rhyme, but that didn't work out. Oh well, on to the next buzzword. The next buzzword of today, buzzword number six, is the deep web. Ooh, spooky. Once again, we are in buzzword because of the movie's territory. Hacker, firewall, encrypted data, network breach, deep web. Oh, and a guy wearing a black hoodie. The cliche buzzword we see getting thrown around every time someone wants to talk about cybersecurity and sound mysterious while doing it. I mean, I can't really blame them, as it is human nature to enjoy mysteries and want to solve them. So, I guess if you are in the entertainment industry, throwing out the word deep web around is indeed one of the ways to go. However, if you are an IT professional, blindly trusting that what you see in movies is how things actually work is definitely not. Does the deep web contain mysterious websites and crazy mind-bending information? Yes. 
Is it a black hole where only the most courageous may enter and the most bizarre may stay? No. No. <laughs> a bunch of the websites you have in the surface web also exist in the deep web. If you want, you can do your regular browsing but using the roads, let's call them that for now, of the deep web instead. All you have to do is download the software tool that will allow you to access it. The most well-known tool to do so is the Tor browser, which will give you access to the Tor network where lots of deep web websites are hosted. So let's talk a little bit about the Tor network and try to understand what is the oh-so-mysterious deep web and why you can't access it by simply typing take me to the deep web on a search engine in your regular browser. Think about the internet as being the entire planet. Earth as you know it. Everyone and everything we know and can access is inside the planet. And for the smarty pants that will try to say, but what about space travel? Don't be a downer and destroy my analogy. Use your imagination and pretend like all we know is inside the planet only, which is the only thing we have access to. The planet is like the entire internet. Now imagine all of the roads on the planet. You can drive through them and go anywhere you want, the same way your data can flow through the internet and reach several destinations, which will provide you with services such as web browsing and email sending. Consider now, however, that a group of servers, or to stick to the analogy, a group of destinations for road trips, decide to bundle together and create their own underground secret routes and make themselves and their services accessible only to travelers which use those secret routes. The regular roads that would lead you to them are destroyed and there are now a few single regular roads that lead to the entry points of the underground tunnels. Anyone can enter the underground tunnels if they wish to and use the tunnels to reach those secret destinations, as can anyone download a Tor browser and find websites which are deep web or even darknet services. However, if you want to reach your destination, you must use the tunnel and you can no longer use maps to reach this destination since in the underground tunnels, they provide you with no maps as they do in the surface roads. No maps so that the destinations remain well hidden within this secret underground road network and so that they can change their location or stop existing whenever they wish to do so. No records means no tracking. When entering the underground tunnels, you set up three intermediate tunnel-only destinations that will help you reach your desired endpoint. Let's consider those toll booths. The first one is where you will always stop at the beginning of your journey. The second one will connect you to the last one, which in turn will be the one that will finally tell you which road to follow to access the destination which will provide you with the service you wish to access. Think now that these intermediate points recognize you by your car color. 
a very specific color you and each toll booth attendant have previously decided on the moment you knew they would be your intermediate stops. So the first point recognizes a red car, the second a blue car, and the last a green car. I am using simple colors here, but to amuse your own imagination, you can think of it as a very specific shade of red that cannot be replicated by anyone else, meaning it will identify you uniquely to that specific toll booth. Same goes to the blue and to the green. Before passing through your underground toll booths, you paint your car green, then blue, and then red. When you go to the first mark, the toll booth guard recognizes the red hue of your car and identifies you as a valid passenger. It removes the red hue and you tell it your next toll booth stop. It forwards you in that direction, meaning it shows you the way to the blue toll booth. You go to the blue toll booth and the same thing happens. It recognizes the blue hue, removes it, and sees that you are going to the green toll booth and it directs you there. Finally, when you reach green, they do the same, but they finally send you to your final destination. Notice that this allows you to stay anonymous because you got in in a red car and got to your destination in a green colored car. The red toll booth does not know your final toll booth was green, knowing only you went to blue. And the green does not know your starting point was red, knowing only you came from blue. Blue does not know your starting point nor your final destination, knowing only that you came from red and left for green. Going back to that final destination, your final destination can be outside of the underground tunnels and back on the main roads. You use the underground tunnels just so that people who see you get in through the tunnels in a red car don't follow you and don't know where you got out. Your final destination, however, can also be inside the tunnel network. If that is the case, you will never go to the actual destination because underground tunnel services establish an intermediate rendezvous point for communication and service offering instead of letting you reach them at their actual location. Knowing the secret name of the service, you are able to obtain information on what places are set as these rendezvous points. So, leaving the analogy for a little bit, this is basically what the Tor network is and what at least part of the deep web is. The Tor network is an established network inside the internet. The secret underground roads inside of the planet's entire road network. It still uses roads, meaning it still uses IP addresses and establishes communication between devices using regular means in layers under the application layer itself. However, it defines a private communication method within the public internet. Anyone can download a Tor browser and access Tor websites, which would be part of the deep web websites. However, to do so, you need to know the website's address and the format that will be recognized in the Tor network. 
Unlike the surface web where you register the mapping of your website name and the IP address of the server that will host that website in order for people to be able to find it without having to memorize a complex number to do so, thank you DNS, in the Tor network what you will know is the name of the Onion service and the location where the service meets clients wishing to access it. Tor nodes or toll booths can then route you to this destination where you can introduce yourself to the server and then set a rendezvous point, which is where the rest of the communication between you will actually happen. In the Tor network, it is not as simple as the definition of an explicit mapping that says, oh, you want to get to this place? Here is the address. Nope, here everything is done covertly and secretly you have a meeting place to define the definitive meeting place. So maybe it is a little bit mysterious after all. I'll give the movies that. Of course, you can use the Tor network or secret underground tunnels to access a regular surface web website if you want to. It is not necessary, but a lot of people do it because it allows for anonymous browsing. Our underground tunnels won't allow for identification of who sent a message that is reaching a specific destination. Remember the whole car painting process and the colorful toll booths? Well, in technical terms, Tor uses layers of encryption and intermediate proxy nodes in order to stop someone snooping from knowing who is the original sender of a message arriving at a certain destination. Encryption being used to assist in keeping anonymity and to maintain confidentiality of the data that is being transferred by whoever is using the Tor network. So yeah, kind of a long explanation, but demystifying it, this is what the deep web is. Encryption, intermediary nodes, regular websites, creepy websites, and lots of bureaucracy to get you to your final destination. Oh, wait. That's just part of it, since Tor is only one of the many underground tunnel networks that exists out there. There are others with different rules, different entry regulations, and different functionalities and purposes in general. I decided to tell you about how the most famous one of these secret networks within the network works, so that you can get the general iceberg idea of it. However, Lady Internet is a vast place, filled with opportunity to create and embed. So secret networks which cannot have their services or resources accessed through the regular www.url are plenty out there. All you need is the will and the knowledge of the way to explore it. Oh, and the permission as well. I am not condoning you committing a crime here. Anyway. I think that is enough of me talking for one episode. Tune in for next time, where we will talk about our last three buzzwords for this series, which I might add, are three giants. All of them suggested by my Ubuntu security team peers, of course. Regarding today's episode and today's buzzwords, feel free to share your thoughts on any of our social media channels, as I would love to hear what you have to say about it. For now, I bid you all farewell, and until next time. Bye. And thanks again, Camilla. 
Alright, uh, before we go this week, the other thing I wanted to mention is that I am away next week. I do hope to still publish an episode though, which will be part three of Camilla's uh, Cybersecurity Buzzwords. So look out for that one. Uh, and otherwise though, I will be back with you all in two weeks to do the usual security roundup and all of that kind of thing. Uh, until then though, obviously you can contact us as always at securitydubuntu.com. We do hang out in the Ubuntu security channel on libera.chat and we are on Twitter too at Ubuntu underscore sec. So thanks everyone for listening again for another week. I'll be back with you all in two weeks, uh, but look out for Camilla's part three of the Buzzwords uh, series before then. Uh, But otherwise, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.